Hi, my name is Liz Wiseman, and you are listening to Leadership Biz Cafe. Hi, everyone. This is Tambir Nasir, and on today's episode of Leadership Biz Cafe, I'll be talking with Liz Wiseman. Liz is the president of the Wiseman Group, a leadership research and development firm headquartered in Silicon Valley, California. Some of her clients include Nike, Apple, Dubai Bank, and Twitter. Liz has also worked at Oracle as the vice president of Oracle University and as the global leader for human resource development. Through her firm, Liz has conducted research into the field of leadership and collective intelligence, research which has served as the basis of her Wall Street Journal best-selling book, Multipliers, How the Best Leaders Make Everyone Smarter. Hi, Liz. Welcome to the show. Well, I'm delighted to be here. Now, your book, Multipliers, is based on research that your co-author, Greg McEwen, and you did to understand why some leaders are able to bring out the best in their employees. So what brought your attention to the idea that there could be specific attributes or behaviors that leaders demonstrate that could have a tangible, measurable impact on the level of discretionary efforts employees give to an organization's shared purpose? Well, Tim, the, the, the research began with really just a very simple observation. I had spent 17 years at Oracle, and I worked around brilliant people. And most of my time there was spent in, in management, and I worked really closely with Oracle's executive team. And I just, I was observing these leaders in action, all of them brilliant. But I noticed that not all of these executives brought out brilliance in people around them. And I could watch how some leaders were so smart, so capable, but yet the people around them had to hold back. And, you know, it's almost like they they shut down intelligence around them. You know, some of them, you might even see it almost visually. They kind of suck the intelligence out of, out of a room. And then I watched other leaders who were, you know, equally brilliant but they had a different effect on other people that they they seem to um, grow or even at, at minimum allow other people around them to be intelligent and fully smart. And, you know, I could watch an employee, you know, a middle manager, someone go and meet with one of the senior executives who was what I ended up calling a multiplier versus another leader who, you know, we ended up calling a diminisher. And I could watch how this person and their capability was either at its fullest or sort of shut down. And that was really this simple observation that began this research. I I was out doing some executive coaching work several years ago, working with a lot of really smart, brilliant, um, many with, you know, just these incredible pedigrees of education from top universities around the world. And I was trying to simply coach a couple of these executives. How do you operate in a way that really sort of amplifies intelligence of others, that creates this kind of contagious viral intelligence? And it was really in that coaching that I decided I was going to go and study this and see if I could quantify really two things. One, what was it that these leaders did differently? And two, how much more were these multiplier leaders getting from other people? I, you know, I sort of hypothesized it was, I don't know, 20%, 25% more. And 
you know, the reality is I was off by an order of magnitude. I, I was, you know, it turned out that these leaders got twice the capability of these diminishing leaders, um, which was really shocking to find that out. It's interesting, too, because one of the things you point out early on in your book is how these multipliers are able to get more from their employees, not because they allocate more resources, but because they tap into that collective intelligence and that creativity that's found within them. And that really kind of mirrors what we're seeing in a lot of the employee engagement studies that have shown that while the majority of employees are overworked, they admit that they're also underutilized. You know, it really is. And and, and I think that this is the dirty little secret of the corporate world that we don't talk about a lot is that so many employees are busy, but they're bored. You know, they come into work every day knowing they have more knowledge, more skill, more insight, more creativity than their their job requires. And and for some, more than their boss encourages. And 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 for a lot, unfortunately, more than their boss even allows. And you know, as I've studied this and as I've been out teaching leaders all over the world, I I see how desperately people want to contribute at work and how painful it is for them not to. And, you know, it was interesting as I studied these two different kinds of leaders, we found that when they dis- people describe working for diminishers, these leaders who our research showed got, you know, 48% of people's capability. Uh, in the education world, that number even goes down to 40%. So we'll call it in the 40s. Um, people describe the experience as frustrating and exhausting. And then you contrast that with the experience of working for these multiplier leaders, leaders who got, you know, our research showed kind of in the high 90s, um, you know, anywhere from sort of high 80s to, to high 90s percent of people's intelligence, you know, their knowledge, their skills, their intellect. People describe that experience as, you know, honestly a bit exhausting, but totally exhilarating. You know, that feeling like you've just finished a great workout where you're tired, but you're energized. Right. And I just think it's so interesting that working at less than half of our capability is exhausting. Hmm. You know, but working at all of it, that's exhilarating. I'm thinking, wow, we might not really understand burnout. You know, we, we have this sense that burnout comes when people have to work too hard. Yeah. That they're giving too much and they burn out. And I think we're maybe exactly wrong. You know, maybe burnout is a function of not being able to contribute enough. You know, that we burn out when we're held back. You know, not when we're propelled forward. And I've just seen this, you know, post book, post the research, as I've been out talking to people um, and teaching and speaking, people describe how painful it is to not be able to contribute your fullest and even like maybe physiologically painful and the stress and what happens even in our bodies, you know, when we aren't able to contribute. Right. It's been interesting. I think it sheds a little bit of light on employee engagement and also employee burnout. There's something you pointed out, again, one of those interesting results you got from your research, which I think tails into this about how doing work that doesn't engage us seems to actually 
lead to potentially that burnout situations, maybe because it's creating its own form of resistance, if you will, to what we want to contribute. But it's also how you noted how there's a lot of people who are what you call diminishers. They're not even aware of what they're doing, what actions or decisions they're making are actually serving more to impede their team than actually to help them accomplish and succeed at what they're trying to do. And I think that this finding reinforces the point that, you know, we hear a lot of people discussing, which is that we need open and honest communication lines with our employees to understand how our leadership is perceived, because it's easy for our leadership horizon to get skewed from what others actually experience. Oh, yeah. There's that, you know, the old saying that we we judge ourselves on our intentions and we judge other people on their actions. Exactly. And, you know, we, we see that come into play. It was shocking to me in doing this research how few of these diminishers understood that they were having a diminishing impact. You know, as I did parts of this research in Silicon Valley where I've worked and where I know a lot of the executives and people would mention names of leaders, you know, in this diminisher category, I know some of these people and I know they have no idea that they're having this impact. And then, of course, as we've been using assessment tools um, and, and helping individual leaders see their impact, most have no idea. You know, I think we tend to do our greatest harm with the very best of intentions. Um, you know, and so as as I, you know, with Greg, we studied these extremes, these multipliers and diminishers sort of at their extremes. But I think the more interesting insight is that there's a spectrum between these two poles and somewhere in the middle there is what, you know, I call the accidental diminisher. This is the, the good person, the good leader. This is the person that reads management books and goes to management classes and probably is listening to this broadcast. These are people like you and me who have the best of intentions, think we're exhibiting great leadership, but much of what we've been taught or what we've seen through our modeling ends up shutting down smart, capable people, you know, despite our best intentions. Um, you know, for, for example, I'll, I'll share a couple of, of mine, you know, a, a couple ways that I know I have a tendency to end up diminishing. You know, probably the first is what I call the idea guy. You know, these are people who are creative. They're innovative. They're just full of ideas. They come into the office sort of like brimming with ideas and they kind of like a fountain sort of spew ideas. What's their intention? You know, it's not that our ideas are better than anyone else. We think that our ideas are going to kind of spark other ideas and sort of give people permission to think and be creative. But, you know, if you really look at the impact of what I call these idea guys, what actually happens around them, around us, as I have this tendency, you know, we tend to spout ideas, often ideas du jour. People scurry around going, oh, okay, you know, listening sad or so-and-so wants this. And people make you know, a millimeter of progress in a hundred different directions, you know, during the course of a month and they stop, you know, pursuing anything in depth and, and often they end up stationary because they've chased ideas, none of which have really gone anywhere because there's always a new idea tomorrow or the next day or the next week to replace it. And they end up getting sort of creatively lazy, waiting for the fountain to go off. 
Um, so sometimes, you know, it's just an example of one of the ways with the best of intentions um, we can diminish. You know, many of us are what I call rescuers. You know, we don't like to see people struggle, make mistakes, suffer, and heaven forbid, fail. And so when we see members of our team about to make a critical mistake, we step in and we, I mean, sometimes we heroically take over and we save the day, but, you know, it's often more subtle. You know, we simply help. But, you know, what happens when the leader is helpful too early or too often? You know, they end up stifling learning. They end up creating dependency. You know, they create an organization that can't get across the finish line without them. They are propping up the runner, you know, and sort of running someone else across the line. Um, And then, you know, they're shocked that they kind of end up rescuing and micromanaging, but it's all done with the best of intentions. How do I make sure my person is successful? Right, exactly. And you know, there's an important thing you mentioned early in your point where you said how in discussing the accidental diminisher, that the, the spectrum between the diminisher and the multiplier, and that is really that this isn't an either-or scenario, that we're either a multiplier or a diminisher, but that we do have the potential to be either, and to varying degrees at any point in time, which requires a mindfulness on our parts to ensure we're empowering and not disabling those we lead. Oh, yeah. You know, when I started this work, and even when I started the book, it was the sense that, okay, you know, is this person a multiplier or a diminisher? And I, you know, I'm not even sure that's a relevant question anymore. I, I think more in terms of, you know, to whom am I a multiplier and to whom am I a diminisher? Mm. You know, I had one CEO, she said to me, she read the book and she said, Liz, is it possible that I could be an absolute multiplier to 80% of my team, but a diminisher to 20%? You know, absolutely. Um, Is it possible that there are certain situations that kind of bait me in to being a diminisher? Um, You know, do I tend to diminish at the end of the quarter when it's time to kind of close the books and bring in the revenue? Um, you know, is it possible that I can hire someone and sort of start with very much a multiplier approach and mentality, but something shifts over time? And so, you know, under what circumstances do we tend to be multipliers and how do we do that more often? You know, and and what circumstances or with people or with certain projects or type of work tends to bring out more of a diminisher approach? And then how do we create workarounds around that? Um, you know, all of this kind of driving towards what I think is is the the most helpful approach to these ideas is just how do I be a multiplier more often and to more people? Right. You know, I think that's a perfect starting point for us maybe to look at some of the specific actions or behaviors that leaders do that exemplify those of a multiplier. And, you know, I thought a good place to start that would be looking at what's currently a key focus for many organizations, and that is attracting and retaining talent. Now, in your research, you found that multipliers don't simply attract talent, but that they also stretch and grow the talents of those they lead. So could you explain how do multipliers accomplish this? And comparatively, what do diminishers do differently that we should avoid doing ourselves? Yeah, this is probably uh, what's outlined as the first discipline of the multipliers. They tend to be talent magnets. You know, diminishers tend to be empire builders. They love to hire smart people. 
actually both love to hire smart people. Diminishers tend to hire smart people almost as organizational trophies. Um, you know, look at all these smart people around me, therefore, um, look at me, you know, people tend to get underutilized, uh, kind of like the visual I always get is sort of put in the display case, you know, pretty little objects behind glass, but not well utilized. And the multiplier approach is, you know, let me hire smart people, or let me just sort of take whoever you give me and let me figure out what their native genius is. Um, you know, this might come out of the strengths literature, but their towering strength. And, and the term I use, native genius, what is it that they do natively? Uh, what do they do easily and freely? What is it that they can't help but do? And how do I find that? These multipliers tend to put a label on it, you know, like, uh, you know, you're really good at synthesis. Or, you know, you have the ability to identify the, the, the downsides and the pitfalls. How do we use this at its fullest? And, you know, they tend to build jobs and roles around that. And they tend to do it um, so it fully utilizes and showcases that person's genius, but also stretches it. Um, one of my favorite practices, uh, there's two sort of very specific practices that come out of it. One is what I call the sort of genius watching exercise, you know, where using this criteria, what do people do easily and freely? It's it's noticing people's genius and putting it to work. And, and I think taken to the extreme, sort of the ultimate multiplier logic on this is once you identify someone's native genius, you've earned the right to put them to work. And it doesn't matter if they work for you organizationally or not. You know, even if it's the most senior executives in the company, if you can figure out what they're brilliant at, you know, you get to put them to work. Why? Because everyone loves to be able to work and to be used in the thing that they're brilliant at. Um, that's one real specific. And the other is a little practice I call supersize it. And, um, you know, it's it's kind of giving out responsibilities in a little bit of an irresponsible way. Um, you know, how do I give someone a role that's supersized? That's you know, a size or two too big, kind of like the way that I shop for shoes for my young children, you know, back when they were young. Um, you know, now my, my son has size 13 feet. But, you know, when he was little, when I went to buy a pair of shoes for him, I always bought them, you know, like all parents, a size up. And if I, you know, if you're lazy and hate to shop, you know, you buy him two sizes up. And when he says, but mom, my feet are flopping around in these shoes, you know, you say, don't worry, you'll grow into it. And it's kind of the way that these multipliers size people's responsibilities, maybe just a size too big and say, you know what, this may feel a little uncomfortable at first, but don't worry, you'll grow into it. Which is why, you know, when we did this research, people said not only did multipliers get 100% of their capability, we had kind of a certain percentage of our respondents who would say they got 110, 120% of my capability. And initially, um, Denver, I, I, I truncated all the numbers. I sort of wrote it off as hyperbole. You know, that sort of, hey, let's give it a college best, college try, left it all in the field. And what people said almost vehemently was they got so much out of me um, you know, they, they got things out of me I didn't even know I had, and I grew so much working for them that I can't even measure it on 100%. So it's these leaders utilize talent, and then they grow it. 
And that's what I think offers this kind of a little exhausting, but totally exhilarating kind of work experience. Right. And you know, it's funny how you're talking a lot here about the genius of our employees. It mirrors something I've been writing a lot about lately, and it seems to be resonating a lot with my readers. And that is how, as leaders, we need to stop thinking that we have to be the smartest person in the room to lead. And that we have to recognize instead that our role is really to enable and empower those under our care to succeed and thrive through our collective efforts. And, you know, recently, one of the things that I was also discussing was the idea of understanding success and failure and understanding how failure is an opportunity for us to learn rather than to figure out who did what wrong. And that was one of the things you also noticed as being a behavior multipliers exhibit in that how they create these learning environments for their employees and the space within which they can make mistakes, but under that expectation that you're going to learn from it. So what are the ways that multipliers manifest this behavior in the organization? How do they, how do they communicate to their employees that you have the permission to make mistakes and you have the space to make them, but with the expectation that you're going to learn from it. I expect you to learn from it and grow because of it. Yeah. You know, I think one of the, uh, my favorite examples of this was one of the leaders we studied um, at Microsoft who coincidentally runs um, the Microsoft learning organization, uh, Lutz Ziob. And I interviewed about 12 people who work, work for Lutz and they all said some version of this. They said, you know, around Lutz, you can make any mistake you want. But you, no one dares make the same mistake twice. Mm. You know, first one's forgiven, the second one isn't. And, you know, here's someone who understands how to drive a learning organization and how to create space for people to do bold work, but not, you know, stupid work, not repeating the same kind of mistakes over and over. And, you know, when we really uh, drilled down and we looked at how Lutz leads, I think it's really instructive of what we need to do to create this kind of innovative space for people to take risks. It's very, very popular in the literature right now, and it doesn't work the way that we think it works. I think a lot of what I read, it's like, okay, well, leaders need to sort of create a culture of innovation and risk-taking, and they need to kind of talk about that. And what we found is it's not accomplished through talking about the environment or even debriefing other people's learning mistakes, the number one thing these multipliers do to create this environment is they talk about their own mistakes. Hmm. And and someone said, Lutz, you know, his favorite topic of conversation is his own mistakes. So think about this. You know, you've got a, a senior executive or a team leader who's public about some of the mistakes she's made, you know. Oh, let me tell you about a real doozy of mine. I mean, that goes so far in creating permission for other people to do it. You know, it's like, well, I did it and I survived, you know. Um, You can make a mistake and survive with me. Um, So they tend to take it public. You know, we often think, oh, mistakes, failures, that should be talked about sort of with the door shut, in the closet, in the dark, you know, hidden from the organization. You know, and I actually find it tends to be out in the public. Um, you know, uh, one of the leaders we, we we looked at was, you know, she had kind of a standard practice in her staff meeting screw up of the week where, you know, it was just like, okay, let's look at, you know, something silly, um, foolish, a mistake in the organization. It was talked about publicly 
which actually allows the person to get over it way faster than if those things are swept under the rug. Right. But, you know, all done in a very, very safe environment. Interesting. You know, it kind of reflects something that a lot of the current psychology research has been doing into understanding emotional intelligence, the role it plays in organizations and stuff. And one of the keys that they're saying is that we, in terms of the needs that we need to have in an organization, is relatedness. That people need to feel a sense of commonality, a shared experience with those they work with. It's not just enough for us to know that, okay, we're all working under the same umbrella of a company name or company goals but that there is a commonality in our experiences. That's what your findings are exhibiting as well, that by leaders openly saying, well, these are the mistakes I've had, it does create that thing, well, you know, he, he's just as fallible as I am, but he's clearly found a way to turn those mistakes into an advantage that allows him to or her to do their job better. Oh, yeah. I think, um, you know, Bren Brown's research on vulnerability is really interesting to look at here. You know, we often think of... Um, leaders and our strong leaders as, oh, these are like infallible. These are strong. These are leaders who've got it all right. And I actually think that we identify, we commit to, we follow leaders who have cracks in them, you know, um, that have vulnerability, that actually need other people. Right. You know, um, you know, because if, if you've got some guy who's the smart, if, you know, he needs to be the smartest person in the room, well, who does he need? You know, we tend to fill in those cracks. So I think there's some really interesting things to look at with vulnerability. And, you know, bringing the conversations into the public square, I think, are really powerful for harnessing all this intelligence. And the work I would point to was uh, Jim Thompson's work um, uh, out of the Positive Coaching Alliance out of Stanford University. And, and there was this Something I read in his book, I think it's called The Double Goal Coach. I read this years ago where he talked about as a, a youth coach uh, out in youth sports that the best coaches have what he calls failure recovery rituals, meaning if someone just blows the play, you know, maybe they score an own goal, you know, some big screw up, they run the wrong way, that they had this ritual the best coaches had these rituals for like recognizing those and getting over it. Um, I remember one particular coach, they had this like flushing motion when someone screwed up on the field, the player, and then all the other players would just kind of flush. Like we're just flushing that mistake down so that they can get back into the game, shake it off and keep going. And I think there's some parallels to that in the business world. You want your organization to be brilliant. You've got to come up with a way for people to know where's the space safe space to experiment and make mistakes. Where is it not okay? Um, one retail organization I was working with recently, they came up with some clarity, which is we don't experiment in December. You know, that's where we bring in our year. That's where all the profitability comes from a retail business. So experiment 11 months out of the year, but we play it safe in December. Just coming up with that clarity, this was the executive team of a very large retailer who came up with this in one of our workshops I mean, think about how that liberates an organization. Experiment 11 months out of the year, but December, we go with what we know works. Okay, you, you have space to make mistakes, but not in December. Huh. You know, I think part of the problem, too, is that our relationship and our perception of mistakes, you know, we tend to look at it as being, well, if we give permission to people to make mistakes, they're going to kind of be more lax and so forth. But 
in, in the research you've shown that through the ability of people to stretch themselves, to challenge them and so forth, it creates that environment where people not only wanted to deliver the best themselves, but there's this sense of a clearly defined need for them to do so. That They really need to step up and deliver. And, you know, it reminds me, actually, when I was reading about that, of a boss I worked with who I still have fond memories for. And he was the kind of leader who, he expected great things from you. But you wanted to prove him right about those great expectations because he clearly believed in you. That, you know, he knew you could rise to meet this challenge. And whenever you had meetings with him, he would rarely offer answers. Instead, he'd be asking questions that helped you understand what part of the situation or problem was most critical to the organization and what my insights would reveal as the best approach to it. So as much as there might be like, well, there's this concern, well, I'm stretching you, will you be able to complete it without stumbling? You probably will stumble, but there was that sense of belief that in challenging you, I believe that you're going to be able to rise to it and actually grow your abilities. And that's one of the things you did find in your research that multipliers do, right? They create this environment where people feel challenged to do their best work. Oh, absolutely. And, and your example of the, this boss you worked for is a great example of this this in motion. Uh, you know, hearing that reminds me of one of the leaders that we studied, um, Matt McCauley, CEO of Jimboree. When he took over as CEO, he was very, very young CEO, was 33 years old at the time. Jimbery was about a, oh, just a little shy at that point, about a billion dollars um, in revenue, public company. You know, earnings per share were at 69 cents a share. He takes over and he sees through his his background in inventory management that there's room to grow profitability and deliver higher earnings per share. He goes to the board and he says, I think we can get to a dollar a share this fiscal year. And the board literally laughs at him because it's such an outrageous goal. I mean, you know, they'd be happy for 10 or 20 percent improvement on earnings per share. And he's talking about not quite doubling it, but, you know, it's huge growth. And he goes to his team and he presents mission impossible, you know, and then he asks, how do we get to a dollar a share this fiscal year? And and he kind of seeds a few ideas, but he mostly just asks this big question and shows a couple places where it's possible for them to pursue this. You know, soon everyone's got this Mission Impossible goal that's kind of cascaded through the organization. You know, that next year they had delivered a dollar nineteen a share. And again, you know, Matt sets this another Mission Impossible goal. How do we get to $2 a share the following year? You know, shockingly big. That year they delivered, I think it was $2.15. And so he's, you know, very uncreatively, but sort of boldly sets this, how do we get to $3 a share? They missed that year. They get they delivered $2.67, I believe. That's when I was really interested because I want to know what's going to happen in that moment. You know, do they give up? They've missed. They've been on this crazy success run, but they fail. Um, I interviewed one of um, several of the people who worked for Matt. One of them said, you know, I asked, why why didn't you give up when you missed? And, and, and she said, well, if we were successful, it was just, you know, it was fun. It was it was great. It was bold. But if we missed, you know, all it really proved was Matt was crazy, you know, because he he set it up as this impossible goal. And so if we missed we still made this incredible improvement. And, you know, the next year they delivered $3.21 a share because they never let sight of this goal. 
think about the positioning. This wasn't Matt cheerleading them on why they they could do it and they should do it and why it was possible. He kind of put it out there and said, maybe it maybe it's impossible. And I think doing that, challenging with a big, bold challenge, but creating kind of a valve that says, I might be crazy. This might be asking too much. We, we've never done it before. I don't know that we can be successful. Is far more powerful than all the sort of cheerleading, rabble-rousing, vision-based leadership that often ends up diminishing. Um, one of the ways we found people tend to diminish with the best of intentions, I'm a little guilty on this one, is by being optimistic. You know, the can-do, uh, glass-half-full kind of leader. You know, what happens when the leader can only see the upside? Hmm. You know, it often creates a scenario where other people can only see the downside because they're like, what's what's she thinking? You know, does she not understand? And, you know, I, I learned this one the hard way. I'm working with someone on a fairly complex project a couple years ago. And at one point he stopped me and he said, Liz, I need you to stop saying that. I said, well, saying what? He goes, you know, that thing you say all the time. I'm like, oh, do tell. What's that? And he goes, you know, how hard can it be? How hard can this be? Hey, how hard can this be? Of course, now I'm, I was recognizing my own words in that. And I said, oh, yeah, you know, that's kind of what I say to, to sort of indicate, you know, we're smart. We can figure this out. You know, hey, how hard can this be? We can learn how to do this. And I could tell this was sort of rubbing him a little raw. And he's like, yeah, that's what I need you to stop saying. I'm like, why? Wow. He goes, you know, because what we're doing is actually really hard. You know, and I want you to acknowledge that. Mm. You know, and I learned that my sense of positivity, can-do attitude was actually shutting someone down rather than opening something up. And I've learned to say things like, this is really hard. You know, this might be mission impossible. We may not be successful at this. You know, it's interesting because I could see people listening to this example of Matt and him coming up with this idea of how can we exceed the expectations that our shareholders have and so forth. And I can imagine anyone who's working within a team and going forth with such a, an approach can imagine the amount of reluctance and outright resistance you'll get because people will say like, you, you know, the example you said where people felt like not acknowledging how hard something is, it, it almost negates what they're experiencing. And probably one of the more fascinating chapters, because I had never thought of it in that context, is how the role of fostering debate as part of a decision-making process, how fundamentally important that is to getting people engaged in the process, because you're using debate to get people to challenge their assumptions and to stretch their understandings. And in looking at the example you're sharing about Matt, you could see how by not going in and saying, well, this is what we're going to do, he's actually framing the issue right off the bat, saying, you know, this is the question, and let's get some data, not just opinions, to f try to figure out, is this realistic, or am I just crazy? And I think that's an important element of multipliers that I don't think a lot of us recognize. I think there's too much of that because we're so busy. Let's just get it done. Let's get it done. Yeah, and, you know, this was a fun area. You know, I love in the research finding things that, that are counterintuitive, that don't work the way we think they would work. And debate is one of them. You know, we have these associations, debate. Debate is 
uncomfortable. Debate is divisive. It's political. It's slow. And what we found is that these multipliers use debate so brilliantly and done well. You know, debate is is fast and debate actually unifies a team more than divides it. And, you know, what we saw is that these these multiplier leaders, they, on, on you know, on the small decisions, they, you know, they probably delegate, maybe dictate, ignore, but on the big vital decisions, they, they focus on, on debate. They let people weigh in. Um, a lot of popular management, you know, I think we've been sold a bill of goods um, over the last few years about this notion of buy-in. Okay, you know, let's get everyone to buy into this. And the way that tends to work is you've got a leader who makes a decision, um, often in an inner circle or themselves, and then they run around trying to get people to buy in. And, you know, they probably, you could see it on their to-do list. Okay, meet with so-and-so, meet with so-and-so. And there's all these buy-in meetings that is actually slow. And, you know, very rarely do people like or enjoy or really with authenticity buy into decisions other people have made. And I think it's a huge waste of time and productivity inside of organizations. And what we see with these multipliers is they let people weigh in and they end up getting all the buy-in that they need. The, the multiplier spends their effort finding the right problem, assembling the team, framing the issue and defining the question. And they, they sort of... Um, eschew spontaneous debate, which we love to do and we think is fast and lively. And instead, they ask people to come in prepared. Here's the question. Come in prepared to weigh in on this. Come in with actually a position. And we find that when people are invited to come in with a position, a pre-established position, it actually not only leads to a better decision, it leads to a more unified decision. When I come in having made up my mind on something, I'm more likely to change my mind. Um, it, it works in really interesting ways. They, they ask people to come in with a position and to argue that position, but then to be willing to reverse it. It might be, you know, Liz, you've been arguing for this. Denver, you've been arguing against it. You two switch positions. You know, um, Liz, you argue against it. Denver, you argue for it the debate gets lively and people argue from different points of view and soon we're not attached to our positions but the group it's sort of out in that public square the group has come up with sort of a winning position and they put the focus on what matters is the position of the team and it actually unifies the team and we find it's very fast because once that debate has happened people know how to execute they execute swiftly, intelligently, and they tend to really put weight behind the execution um, as opposed to sort of the slow, ineffective process of buy-in. For me, it was a fun area to study because it doesn't really work the way we think it works. No, it doesn't. And it certainly goes counter to what we see and what we perceive in terms of debates where we see it as being very antagonistic. It's divisive. And then sometimes it just seems to be more like people are just basically digging in their heels rather than trying to understand each other's position, which was really quite interesting to see what it was multipliers do that actually use debate as an opportunity to really get people to think 
about the whole process to rethink their own positions and, like you said, come up with not what's my position, but what's the best position for the group. Right. And and this secret is letting the I you know, I call it the switch. Um, this is another one I learned from Lutz Ziab is let people switch positions, let people switch perspectives. And, you know, when you give people an out, an ability to switch, it allows people to move off of these entrenched positions. It's actually a playful, fun way for a team to make decisions. And not, I don't want to misspeak here, it's not for all decisions. I'm not advocating debate across corporations, um, but the most vital decisions where you really need a good decision that the team is unified behind, that's when you use debate. You know, Liz, while I was reading your book, it's probably because of the work I'm doing in a leadership position at one of the education institutions here, but I couldn't help but notice that some of the ideas and approaches you have have a potential application in the educational sphere, especially the multiplier trait of investing in those you lead to help them become better versions of themselves mm. by holding them accountable for their efforts, while at the same time giving them the space to learn for themselves about their potential. I mean, there's a few times I actually put your book down and I was thinking in terms of even just being a parent and saying how the approach I use in terms of helping my kids understand the nature of their schoolwork, the nature of their relationships with their peers, with their teachers, and how to work even in team settings and in the application of how a lot of this actually can be applied in their lives. And so I'm curious if you've noticed how these behaviors can be applied in other spheres beyond leadership. Well, you know, we, we have, and some of that has come through through what our readers have said. You know, I've had a, a lot of people read the book and say, well, I've learned more about how to lead in my home and as a parent than I even did at work. And I've heard people talk about, like, couples reading the book together and one of them saying, no, 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 I want to read that now, you know, for the home application. The other one's reading it for, for the work application. And so we've definitely seen this. For me, I've learned as much about how to lead from my work in my home as I have, you know, with years and years managing employees in in corporate settings. Um, We also found after, you know, the book had been out for a little while that um, there was just a real strong interest from educators. And we, we found that these ideas have a lot of applicability in our schools. And, you know, as a result of that, um, and, you know, being invited to go out and teach and work with a number of schools, we had a publisher, you know, say, hey, would you produce a version of multipliers for educators? And, mm-hmm. you know, I initially thought, no, you know, um, I was working on some other things. But as I thought about it, I thought, you know, perhaps the application of these ideas, you know, is going to have its most relevancy in, in our education systems where we have these huge, seemingly intractable problems, and we need multipliers who can solve some of these problems by really deeply utilizing the capability and intelligence already inside our schools. Um, You know, I think our teachers might be our most overworked but underutilized asset we have. Absolutely. Yeah. In, In this regard, you know, I just, every teacher I know works so extraordinarily hard and they know so much and they have so much capability that I'm not sure is coming into play as we struggle with some of the policy issues. So, you know, we've just got done putting together um, 
a, a new book. It's called The Multiplier Effect, Tapping the Genius Inside of Our Schools with this aim of how do we develop multiplier leadership across our, our educational institutions. And I'll tell you, you know, my aim with this book is very, very simple, is I hope not only do we build even stronger leadership in our schools where we need it, both K through 12 and higher ed, but my hope is that we'll have educational leaders who lead like multipliers who really enable educators to be true multipliers to the genius, the intellect, the talent of our students, that student achievement goes up and that when these young people, whether they're in kindergarten right now or whether they're in graduate school, that they they receive that kind of leadership so that when they enter the workplace, they know how to lead. You know, that instead of saying, gee, Liz, all of my role models have been diminishers, that they enter the workplace saying, all of my role models have been multipliers. And they just assume that their role is to bring out the intelligence of the people they lead in the workplace. So that is, that's my aspiration. Right. Well, like I said, I mean, there's so many things even now when we've just discussed that have such an important application in education, especially when we look at how education thinkers like Sir Ken Robinson are pointing out how, you know, our education system was originally designed basically to churn out factory workers. And so we're not really, our education system is not providing us with the kind of workforce that we're going to need in the future. And that's not a poor reflection on our teachers or on the educators. It's just a reflection of the system no longer being reflective of what we need. And when you think of a lot of things that we've discussed about how multipliers tap into the native genius of those that they serve, that they encourage people to stretch themselves to understand what they're fully capable of doing, that they create learning environments. This one, especially the space in which to make mistakes, that mistakes are not something we just put red ink on, but this is an opportunity for us to understand what it is that we did not get and how can we improve our understanding so that the next time we'll understand what that problem requires from us. And I think these traits are so fundamental that if we can have them in our education system, when the students come into the workforce, they're going to be the exact type of people we need to lead and guide our organizations uh, going forward. Well, it's certainly my hope. And I think you said something there that, that was really interesting. Um, you mentioned Sir Ken Robinson. I, I really admire his work. And um, there's something that Clayton Christensen, um, the great, great business thinker, um, you know, Innovator's Dilemma and his incredible work, he wrote the foreword for this um, this wow. new book. And in, in that foreword, there's a couple um, ideas that I thought were so important. He said, you know, one, schools are having to solve problems for which they were not built. Yes. Which is, you know, Sir Ken Robinson's point as well. And, 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 Clay said that, you know, when disruption is afoot, and we know that there's disruption all across the education landscape with, you know, online learning, you know, posing huge opportunities and challenges. But when disruption is afoot, there's nothing more important than leadership. And, you know, we need a kind of leader who knows how to create inquiry, you know, who knows how to ask, who knows how to uncover um, to deal with these huge disruptive forces, not only in our schools, but also in, in our businesses. So, you know, as I've spent the last year really looking at how these ideas play out in education, I think there are some unique challenges. But what, again, I've learned is good leadership um, 
looks the same and we need that kind of leadership in businesses and we need that kind of leadership in our academic institutions. Absolutely. To help bring us full circle here, Liz, I'd like to ask you, how can we ensure, after everything we've discussed, how can we ensure that our efforts to lead our teams and organizations reflect those of a multiplier, someone who you know gets the best from those they lead, instead of a diminisher, accidental or intentional, who only seems to disengage and disenfranchise those under their care? Well, I think it starts with self-awareness. You know, how do we really understand the impact that we're having on others? You know, this is the fundamental question behind this research is, you know, how smart are people around you? You know, as a leader, are you creating brilliance around you or are you dimming the intelligence, you know, inside of your organization and understanding that impact? You know, it can be as simple as just asking yourself the question and you might no, you might need to go out and ask others. You might need to take an assessment. Um, we have a fun little starting point. Um, we It's called the Are You an Accidental Diminisher Quiz? And um, it's at the multipliersbook.com address. And it's a fun little place to just start where you might be able to say, here's the thing I might be doing with the very best of intentions. And, um, you know, I think, Denver, um, as I've, you know, reflect on my experience leading and coaching executives, I find that, you know, a wholehearted adoption of a model is not that useful. Like, oh, let me read the multipliers book and I'm just going to start leading like a multiplier. You know, pick one thing, do it differently. Maybe you shift out of the mode of having all the answers and you just start to ask more questions. You know, maybe you supersize someone's job. Maybe you lead a very simple debate. Maybe you just ask people to switch positions. Maybe you start labeling a challenge as impossible or create a little um, opening for a mistake or a failure. One little thing and shifting your weight toward that, you know, and what kind of possibilities does that open up? So I, I find that the least ambitious are the most successful. What's one thing that everyone can do differently to be more of a multiplier more often to more people? That's a great point. And I absolutely agree with you that key to actually being effective in our change is not to just adopt the model, but to just make one type of tangible change that we can commit to and follow through and really make it part of our own personal leadership model of how we want to serve those around us. Absolutely. And I, you know, I'm still trying every day to be just a little bit more of a multiplier. You know, what is it that I can do today to more fully utilize the genius of people around me? Well, Liz, I have to say this has been a fascinating conversation. And, you know, I've enjoyed learning more about your work and gaining a better insight into how we can all do a better job of tapping into and growing the creativity, the, the genius and the desire to collaborate amongst the people we lead. Well, it's been my pleasure. Thanks for having me here on your podcast and for a really interesting conversation about leadership. Oh, it was my pleasure, Liz. I've been talking with Liz Wiseman about her book, Multipliers, How the Best Leaders Make Everyone Smarter. To learn more about Liz's work, visit the webpage for this episode at tavernasir.com. And that concludes this episode of Leadership Biz Cafe. I hope you enjoyed this conversation, and as always, I'd love to hear your thoughts on what we discussed in this episode, as well as what topics you'd like to hear in future episodes of this show. You can do this by leaving a comment on this episode's webpage, or by filling out the contact form at tavernasir.com. And if you found my show on iTunes, 
please be sure to join other listeners in rating this show. Until next time, this is Tampa Nasir. Thanks, everyone, for listening.